0: The scripture this morning is from Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, This is God's Word.
1: Amen. Thank you for that. That song is uh, one of my personal favorites and been my companion in some weary days. And so, thank you. Please pray with me as we look together at Matthew chapter 11. Lord, we thank you. That you know the burden of every heart in this room. And were we to compare them and lay them out, they would look very different. Some would indeed be heavier than others. All of them are real, all of them are the result of, of life in a fallen world where things do not go the way they should. Where our hearts do not lead us the way we should go. And yet, Lord, as we are going to see in your word this morning, you have not abandoned us. You have not left us even to ourselves. But you are quietly and patiently at work in all of it. God, open our eyes this morning to see you, to see you clearly in your word. Show us, Lord, what true rest looks like in you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as several of you know, um, every couple of weeks I have the privilege of getting together with a group of about five other pastors for kind of a, an accountability fellowship group. Uh, it's the same group that gave birth to the Metro West Men's Ministry, uh, the partnership with First Baptist Church in Sudbury and Trinitarian and Wayland. Um and five out of the six of us are about two years or less into our first lead pastor position, and so we're we're experiencing a lot of the same things, and we kind of pool our ignorance together to figure out you know what what we're doing. Uh, but as is typical in these kinds of groups, at some point in the meeting, we share an update with each other, how life is going, what's going on in our in our ministries and our families. And uh, for the last several months, mine has usually gone something like this. Well, I'm really tired. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, a lot of good things uh, going on, but but we're busy. Uh, kids have been sick again. You know, Carissa's pretty tired. Um, we've got this coming up, and you can be praying for this and for that and so on. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably depending on myself too much here and, and just not trusting the Lord and... Um, I'm kind of presuming on him instead of praying to him. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful, but I'm really tired. And, and you know, I, as I step back and listen to myself week after week, and I find myself saying the same thing over and over, you know, then you read verses like Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You read those and you think, how did I get to this place here where I'm so worn out? Why doesn't my life and my ministry and my pursuit of God feel like that in those verses? And I'm pretty sure, if I were to take a poll, although CJ kind of already took one, I'm pretty sure I'm not not alone in that feeling. You know, weariness, insecurity, anxiety, exhaustion, guilt, shame. Those are just some of the words we often use to describe, if we're honest, to describe our relationship with God. We feel what Lynn was just singing about in our desire to follow God. Instead, we find the hidden evils of our heart exposed. As though the powers of hell were warring against us. What what God designed to be a joy has become a chore for us. What God designed as a life-giving relationship, we have a tendency to turn into a life-draining performance. And though it might sound strange to put it this way, all of this is one of the symptoms of attempting to know and follow God without Jesus. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing here in our passage. The attempt to know the Father without need of the Son to come to God not depending on Jesus but instead depending on ourselves regardless of what our lips say depending on ourselves our own wisdom our own ability our own knowledge and strength it's a life of performance where where all we have and all we think we need to know God we've got right here And, and, and we can figure Him out and follow Him and fellowship with Him by ourselves but A performance-based relationship with God, uh, the reality that so many of us know the hard way, there's only one of two places that that kind of performance-based relationship can lead, either pride or despair. That's it. Either a self-righteous pride where we convince ourselves and others that we really do have it together, we really do have God figured out, where we are able to, to... to kind of tighten our belt and make him happy or somehow make it up to him for the ways we've let him down. Or a self-loathing despair when we know we're not good enough and we never will be good enough and we're tired. And and you know whether the temptation is just too strong or those who are opposing us are too strong, we're buried in guilt and shame and frustration. Jesus speaks to this temptation here to try and know the Father and walk with the Father without need of the Son. And he speaks to both of those two results, both pride and despair. First, he speaks to pride, reminding us that true rest begins by acknowledging God's sovereign control over our salvation and our relationship with him. God is the one who holds the keys to knowing Him, not us. Which means it's actually impossible in our pride to know Him on our own, from our own wisdom and ability, apart from the Son who makes Him known to us. So that's the first thing Jesus reminds us. But second, He also speaks to our despair, inviting us to come and find a true and lasting rest that this world cannot provide, by coming to Jesus, being united with him, and following him. So first is the reminder that God has sovereign control over our salvation. Second is the invitation to find true rest through our union with Jesus and our obedience to his word. And we'll look first at the reminder in verses 25 to 27. So again, if you have your Bibles open if you're using the bible in the rack in front of you it's page 966 Matthew 11:25 At that time Jesus said I praise you Father Lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children Yes Father for this was your good pleasure All things have been committed to me By my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. True rest begins by acknowledging God's sovereign control over our salvation. Jesus is responding here to what we saw last week, earlier in chapter 11 of Matthew. To the pride of those who rejected him as king. Last week we looked at at kind of the first part uh, of this chapter and and how there was a gap between what people expected of Jesus and what he actually came to do. And the crowds who had been following him around throughout Galilee, when they looked at Jesus' deeds... His great miracles, the signs and wonders that we've been reading about, the miraculous healings, when they listened to his teaching, at the end of the day, they were unimpressed. There was nothing to write home about. Uh, Instead of remembering God's promises in the scriptures and recognizing how Jesus was fulfilling those promises right before their eyes, they stood in judgment over Jesus, weighing Jesus. His actions, deciding for themselves according to their own wisdom whether or not his ministry really had any relevance or credibility. They were kind of the judge and Jesus was on the stand and they weren't impressed. The problem was not their desire to know God. The problem was that they didn't think they needed Jesus to do it. And so after condemning them for their rejection of him, And some of the most solemn words that Jesus ever spoke in verses 20 to 24. He now turns to his father and thanks his father for, in fact, hiding the kingdom from the, quote, wise and learned from those who in their pride and presumption thought they had enough wisdom to judge and discard the embodiment of wisdom, Jesus himself. Jesus thanks his Father for hiding the kingdom from them and instead revealing it to the simple, to the humble, to little children. Those who do not and cannot claim in and of themselves that they have done anything to impress God, that they have any way, that they have figured him out on their own, their only hope for knowing God is that he has made himself known to them. That's to whom Jesus Reveals himself Imagine a conversation uh, A room full of, of the top scientists In a particular field and, and they're sitting around discussing a problem No one's ever been able to figure out After years and years of research And all of a sudden In walks a four year old And tells them the answer Now two things happen in that moment First The scholars and, and scientists are humbled They've just been shown up by a kid. But second, it tells you there's someone else in this picture, because there's no way that four-year-old could have figured this out on his own. Somebody had to have let him know it. So it is that when we come, when it comes to knowing God, to, to entering into relationship with him and, and enjoying that relationship, having our sins cleansed, becoming his child, part of his kingdom, no one is wise enough or righteous enough in and of themselves to do that on their own. Our sin and our disobedience have separated us from God. Our our wisdom is too limited to find him or figure him out. You cannot know the Father unless the Son reveals him to you. Which not only humbles those who depend on themselves and think they've got God figured out. It also means that all of the credit for our salvation goes to God. Just like all the credit for that kid's answer goes to the one who actually gave it to him. God has sovereign control over our salvation. He alone has authority to save. Jesus describes his father as Lord of heaven and earth. That is royalty language. That is master king over heaven and earth, all creation, all jurisdiction. He created it. He made it. Therefore, he owns it, and he has the right to rule it. And he does so according to his plan. So God has the authority to save. He also alone has the wisdom to save. He's the one who knows what to do, how to get it done. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Comparing the wisdom of God to the wisdom of humans. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, they couldn't figure him out. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God alone has the wisdom to save. God alone also has the character to save He does so, as verse 26 puts it, back in Matthew 11. He saves according to his good pleasure, his gracious will. God knows what to do. He has the wisdom to do it, and he has the faithfulness to follow through with it as well. He has the character that enables him to save. And only the Son knows the Father well enough to make him known to us. There's no one else who can say, let me tell you about God apart from the Son who intimately knows Him. He describes that intimate relationship in verse 27. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. There's this exclusive intimacy within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And unless they make themselves known, nobody will figure them out. Jesus alone can make him known. So our our salvation is all of grace such that God gets all of the credit for it. And God has given his son the authority to do just that, to make him known. Again, verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my father. He's handed the authority to the son to make him known. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. God has sovereign control over our salvation, and he exercises that through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this idea, what Paul and and others sometimes refer to as the doctrine of election or predestination, uh, sometimes makes us pretty uncomfortable. Um, And and it's certainly a controversial subject, and we will not sort it all out this morning, just so you know. Uh, It raises some honest and important questions for us when we read verses like this. For instance, what about human responsibility? What about our free will and the responsibility to come to God and and respond to Him in genuine faith? But understood properly, the assurance of God's sovereignty over our salvation is actually a source of incredible comfort. Think of all of the weight that we feel in performing for God. All the times our hearts convict us for messing up, all of the times we feel like we're not measuring up, all the anxiety, the insecurity of knowing, where am I at with you today, Lord? What happens when we realize it's not up to me? It's not under my control. God is the one who has control over this. And he's the one who has the ability to make it happen. The weight is not on my shoulders after all. God has sovereign control over where I'm at with him. He has the wisdom, authority, character, and knowledge to do what I cannot do for myself. and To give rest to my soul. There are a lot of reasons the idea of God's sovereignty here Uh, can make us uncomfortable. But one of them is that we do not like the suggestion that we're not actually in control. Uh, It's the same reason that most of us feel safer driving a car on the interstate than flying in an airplane. Reality is this, statistically speaking, airline travel is way safer than automobile. So why do we feel safer in the car? Because I'm the one behind the wheel. I'm in control. But are we really? Do we really have control over when the tire might blow? Do we really have control over what the other drivers on the road might do? And should we be in control when something like our salvation is on the line? Do we really have enough wisdom or authority or character to come to God and find left? find life and rest without Jesus calling us to himself. Which of you, when traveling on an airplane, were it suddenly to lose an engine and start to go down, would jump up and say to the pilot, out of the way, let me take it from here. Okay? And Charlie Smith doesn't count, and others who have their pilot license, Vernon and so on. Who would do that? Nobody. No. How... Who can bear the weight of responsibility to do something you have neither the knowledge or wisdom to do? In those moments, it's actually best not to be in control and to trust someone who does have the wisdom, the knowledge, the authority, the character to save us. Which again means that's the one who gets all the credit for it in the end. That's the one who landed the plane, not me. And when that someone is not a fallible pilot, but an infallible God who has all authority in heaven and earth, who, who has perfect wisdom, flawless character, there is great comfort and rest in trusting him. So here's the point. Until we recognize that God alone holds the keys to salvation, we will continue either to puff ourselves up or wear ourselves out trying to please him. Until we recognize that God has sovereign control over our salvation, we will continue either to puff ourselves up in pride or wear ourselves out in despair trying to please him. True rest begins by acknowledging God's sovereignty over our position with him. That's the reminder. Verses 28 through 30 bring us the invitation. That true rest comes through our union with Jesus and obedience to his word. So look at verse 28 with me. Come to me all, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke Upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. True rest comes through our union with Jesus and obedience to his word. So whereas Jesus spoke to the temptation toward pride in verses 25 to 27, here he speaks to despair the temptation to despair, to lose hope, to to be weighed down and crushed under life's expectations, life's trials, the expectations of religion. This is one of the most beautiful and and open-ended invitations to come to God in all of Scripture, which is exhilarating when you think about the weariness we've been talking about the weariness of trying to perform for God, it's also a little surprising given what we just read in verses 25 to 27 about how we cannot come to God unless he calls us to himself. It's striking to see these two paragraphs kind of side by side in a passage like this. And it reminds us something very important. Just because the Bible makes much of God's sovereignty over our salvation, it doesn't mean that we do not at the same time have a genuine responsibility to respond freely to his call. Okay, those things sometimes kind of give us a headache trying to think about how they work together. But Scripture upholds both of them consistently. It's kind of like the opening scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's book *The Silver Chair*, which is one of the Narnia uh, series. It begins with two classmates, Eustace. Clarence Scrub and Jill Poole uh, complaining about their school. and Eustace tells Jill about how one time he had gone to this land called Narnia. And he guesses that if, if they start calling out to the king of that land, maybe maybe he'll uh, you know they might be able to go there and leave this terrible school. And so they, they call out his name Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And just then some bullies find them and start chasing them. And uh, they, they take off running. They go to what they thought was going to be a dead end, a stone wall with a with a door that's always locked. But this time the door was open, and so they go through it, and they find themselves in the land of Narnia. And soon they encounter the great lion, Aslan, who tells Eustace and Jill that he has called them out of their world for a special task. And Jill says to him, Nobody called me in scrub here. It was we who asked to come here. but Aslan says, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. so So who calls to whom? Yes. Yes. God, we, we call freely to God because He calls sovereignly to us. and that's why we have this kind of beautiful. Invitation right after those verses above. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. But what is true rest here? What is he talking about? To understand that, we need to understand what exactly is the burden that he's seeking to relieve us of. And the imagery here of being burdened and heavy laden, of, of taking a yoke upon oneself, which is kind of, you know, if you didn't grow up in Nebraska, you might not know what a yoke is. And so it's this big wooden harness, you know, that you put on an ox or something to pull a wagon. Um, we hang them above garage doors in Nebraska. Um, you know, that imagery is, is, you know, associated elsewhere in Matthew and other parts of the Bible with the load of keeping the Old Covenant law, the yoke of the Torah. Or more specifically, trying to keep that law apart from Jesus. So, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They're teaching God's law to you. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do... For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That picture of the load. To the extent that the Pharisees were teaching God's law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, faithfully, they were to be obeyed. But what they often did is, is they had a way of adding regulations about how you obey that and when, and so on and so forth, and and adding traditions of men that after a while pretty much eclipsed God's law and and functionally replaced it with their own tradition. You can read Matthew 15 for a good example of that. And the result of that is what we've been talking about here, this performance-based relationship with God that either puffs up like with the Pharisees or deflates. And Jesus is calling to himself all those who are deflated. All who are broken, who have messed up in life and failed. Those who left to themselves know that they have nothing to bring to God apart from their own sin. As long as we continue to live as though we can know God without Jesus... There will be no rest for our souls. As long as we continue to live as though I got this. I don't need to to really trust in Jesus for this part. There will be no rest for our souls. And I'm not just talking about beginning a relationship with Jesus. I'm talking about walking daily with God. Growing in our relationship. Walking in obedience to his word. So often we stop believing what we believe. And we believe in Jesus, and and we come to him in faith, and, and we begin a relationship with him, and then we stop believing what we believe, and we think everything is up to us from here on. And that's that weary burden. That's the load, trying to obey God without Jesus. And sometimes God takes us through painful trials... To open our eyes to that reality. That's what Lynn was singing about earlier. You know, the, that song, you know, I, I asked for grace and faith and love. I wanted to grow in these virtues and what did God do? He made life miserable. So that he could strip me of re- relying on myself. He, in his kindness, employs our inward trials that we might seek our all in him. Not in me. We don't need Jesus only to come to God. We need him for that. We need Jesus every single day to walk with God as well. Only he can give us the true and lasting rest, despite whatever chaos surrounds us in life. So what does that rest look like? If that's the burden he's relieving us from, what does that rest look like? It's not laziness or inactivity. It's not leisure or recreation, though those are a good thing, we should you know, we need to build them into our lives. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. As Doug O'Donnell puts it. Jesus did not say, "Take my chair," or "Take my mattress," or "Take my Xbox controller," or anything like that. He said, "Take my yoke. There's work to do in the rest that God gives us. A yoke is something. You use for work. There's activity. More specifically, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's still talking about obedience to God's word. But it's not an obedience that comes from our own effort and our own flesh, which just weighs us down. It comes from being united with Jesus. With the one who, as Matthew 5.17 tells us, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He has borne and done for us what we could not do for ourselves in keeping God's law. And so we find our identity in him. He's given us his spirit in order to enable us and strengthen us to increasingly follow God's word as obedient children. He, unlike the taskmaster of the law, is the one who is gentle and humble in heart, compassionate, faithful. He's with us the one whose yoke, when we are united with him in faith, is not a heavy burden, but actually easy and light. We don't think of obedience as an easy and light thing very often. It's probably because we're not trusting Jesus to do it. When we're united with Jesus by faith, depending on him and his spirit, his words are not heavy, they're light, they're joyful we think that we're going to find rest in our inactivity Or uh, you know, just checking out If I can just get home after this terrible day And sit in front of the couch And turn the TV on and do nothing And think about nothing else Then I'll be fine you know, that's, that's my default um, We think we'll find rest When we no longer are faced with this particular problem Whatever it is And then lo and behold it goes away And something else replaces it We think we'll find rest If we can just escape We pick up the bottle, pick up the pills, pick up the porn, pick up the fork, pick up a new pair of shoes, a new gadget. But how heavy is all of that? Has any of that stuff ever truly given you rest? True rest comes through our union with Jesus and our obedience to His Word. And what greater rest is there than to be united with the one who is perfect in every way that we fail, who loves us despite our sin and brokenness. We don't have to hide anything from him. He loves us despite that. Who's committed to us such that once we belong to him, he will never let us go. Who gives us his spirit to know and walk with him. What greater rest is there than to be united with Jesus, our Savior? What deeper peace of mind or peace of soul is there than following God and knowing you are right at the center of his will? Even when life falls apart, that you're right where God has called you to be as his obedient child. As Doug Webster writes, For those who live under the yoke of Jesus... United with Him, following His word. There is absolutely no other way to live. Who in their right mind would go back to the gods of self, money, lust, and power? Who would return on bended knee to the shrines of pious performance and judgmentalism? Is not love better than hate? Purity better than lust? Reconciliation, better than retaliation. And is not better, really easier, when measured in character rather than convenience. Rest for the soul rather than selfish pride. Until we recognize that God alone holds the keys to our salvation, we will continue either to puff ourselves up or wear ourselves out trying to please him. True rest begins by acknowledging God's sovereign control over us. And as long as we continue to live as though we can know and follow God without Jesus, there will be no rest for our souls. True rest comes through our union with Jesus and obedience to his word. He is the king who graciously gives us rest, gives rest to the weary. May he be glorified as we find that rest in him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, what a gift it is even to be able to call you Father and to know that through Jesus, We have become children. Thank you for what Christ has done in our place. Thank you for the cross where he bore our sin, where he suffered and died to free us from our sin, to unite us with you. Thank you for the resurrection and the new life that you give to broken, dead sinners. Thank you for your grace. That you give it freely, not because there's a blessed thing we can do to make it up to you or to please you, but because you, in your grace, have loved us. And Lord, we confess we are weary. We are weary. And for all sorts of reasons, some of them good, some of them not. Lord, we need the rest that you alone can provide. And I pray, Lord, for those whose hearts right now are, are just caught up in the anxiety of where am i at with god where am i gonna please him and make him happy today such that he blesses me tomorrow and and just we're we're caught up whether in the pride of of performing well for you or the despair of messing up again and again god would you speak your sovereign authority over those hearts to let them know you're the one who's in control and that it's your grace that unites us to you not our performance god would you release and free hearts burdened under that weight by reminding them of your sovereign grace and would you relieve hearts that are weary in the day-to-day attempt to walk with you for that same reason where we we just we think that somehow it's up to us by ourselves Jesus, would you be near, would you be sweet, would you whisper and remind us who we are in you, that our value, our significance, our identity does not come from what we do, but it comes from who we are in Christ as your children. Lord, we need to hear that every day. We need you to be our King and our Savior, and we confess our weariness to you. And Lord, we pray um, for your hand of grace on all that we do as a congregation, all of our ministries. May this message of of grace before you be something that marks everything. Lord, we think specifically of our home fellowships this morning. Lord, I pray that you would connect people around your gospel, the good news of Jesus, that, that relationships would be built deep and that they would overflow in making you known to others. We pray for our missionaries in that same way, Lord, and we think specifically of Kelsey Karras and her work with Crew um, at Cornell. God, would you continue to uphold her and use her during this year? Would you give her the conversations she needs? Would you continue to teach her more about you through the joys and the trials of, of laying her life down for the sake of your gospel? Would you hold her close to you? And, Lord, we pray for those among us who are bearing an especially heavy burden this morning. Lord, we think of um, Wayne Griffith. And we pray that you would continue to bring healing to his body. Continue to give him grace in the rehab. Be with Jackie. Be with the rest of their family. And, Lord, continue to guide them. Lord, we think of those who are grieving. Think of Leah and Demetrius and the loss of Leah's cousin just a day or two ago. Would you remind them of your of your comfort, of your presence? We think of, of Cindy Brown, uh, Rick Brown, whom we prayed for for many months here, who went to be with you a, a week or two ago. Lord, God, would you be with Cindy? Would you remind her of your love, of your grace? And I thank you, Lord, that Rick... That his load, uh, his burden is over, that he's with you. Lord, we pray for Steve Gerber. Lord, we pray. We grieve with the word from the doctors recently that there's nothing else that can be done. We grieve with Nancy, with Doug, that Steve will be meeting you soon. And yet we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope in the power of your resurrection, that just as you did not abandon your son to the grave, so you will not abandon Steve to the grave or any of us who belong to you. So, God, would you be with them? Would you give Nancy the grace and wisdom she needs to to navigate the meeting this afternoon about getting Steve home tomorrow, Lord willing and would you remind them of your love and Lord, we thank you for how you have already made yourself known to Steve in a special way, how he is so eager to be in your presence, that you 've already given him a glimpse of the peace. That's waiting for him. And he can't wait to get there. And Lord we thank you for how so many. Right here even in this congregation. Have, have loved that family. Have pre- helped prepare their home. For Steve to come back home from the hospital. And yet. You know the heartache of now seeing that. It'll only be for a few days. But yet Lord we know. That going to you is better by far. Jesus thank you. That none of this is up to us. It is in the hands of a far wiser, far kinder, far more gracious master than any of us could be. And we trust you. We trust you and we love you. We thank you that you really are sovereign over everything, even our salvation. And that there is incredible rest in knowing that. Incredible rest. being united with you through Jesus. Lord, we ask all of this in his name. Amen.